Well, turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11. It's Hosea chapter 11. It's in the Old Testament. Um, you may have trouble finding that, but that's okay. You can spend the entire sermon looking for it. Um, now, as, as we look at that, because it's an unfamiliar book for many people, even if you've read it, um, I want to go through some context with you guys. And as a result, there's going to be more context than usual. And I also decided to throw out my introduction. And so it wasn't that good anyways, so it, it'll be okay, at least for you. Uh, the staff, we do evaluation and feedback on Mondays, so I may get really dinged for this. So there's no real introduction. Um, but I want to give you plenty of context for this. Um, but let me give you at least a, a little bit of an outline of what we'll do this morning. So there's three important lessons that we'll see in Hosea chapter 11. And then it will take us to the gospel. So the first thing is that this chapter will richly put on display the love of God the Father. It will put on display the love of God the Father. And second, it's going to make it abundantly clear that God's people are deeply sinful. And if they are deeply sinful, then they need to be saved and only God can save them. And then the third thing is that this chapter in Hosea richly puts on display the faithfulness of the, our Lord. The Lord is always faithful. But as I mentioned, we need to talk about context. Now, context is important to any time that you read the Bible. Uh, but for this passage, I have a hunch that this will be the first sermon that any of you, or most of you, have heard uh, from the book of Hosea. Now, I ran a search on our FBC sermon archive, and I found that there were three available recordings in the last 20 years on the book of Hosea. They were from 2004, so before most of us were even here, before I was here, and from a Wednesday night Bible study. Now, those three talks are actually pretty good by Jeremy Cooper, so you can go listen to them, um, but that's, that's it. Now, this just goes to show that the Bible is a big book. And so we have plans to work through the Bible uh, on Sunday mornings over time to richly, richly feed the flock of God. Um, but context is important here, and that's because it will help us to have accurate exegesis and applications. It will help us to match up with what God's meaning is for the text. So for context, let's start with the man Hosea. Now, Hosea was an 8th century prophet, 8th century B.C. Uh, he was active during the period of the divided kingdom when the 10 northern tribes uh, uh, split from the two southern tribes to form what's called the northern kingdom of Israel. Contemporaries of Hosea the prophet include Amos <clears throat> to the northern kingdom and Isaiah and Micah to the southern kingdom. Now, on the one hand, the latter half of the 8th century B.C. was the most turbulent and trying time in all of history for Israel prior to its captivity. But at the same time, at least early on in the division, it was a time of economic prosperity for the people and comfort, both for Israel and for Judah, which was a primary excuse given sometimes or reason given by the kings to protest the message of the prophets that the kings were so often hard-hearted was because they looked around and said, things are going great. Uh, Hosea the prophet's ministry spanned 30 years, uh, from the end of the reign of Jeroboam II to about the time of the fall of Samaria, its capital, in approximately 722 B.C. 
And though it was a time of prosperity and comfort in Israel, this wasn't due to the character of the people, nor due to the character of their kings. So 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24 summarizes the character and actions of King Jeroboam II like this. It says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that was his father, in which he made Israel to sin. And for the kings of the northern kingdom, that was a summary given to nearly every one of them. So that's the heart condition of Israel's king. It's also the heart condition of Israel as a nation at the time that we come to Hosea 11 this morning. So this means that as a nation, both corporately and the individuals that make it up, that God has judged that they have forsaken him. So the people of Israel have practiced idolatry in nearly every conceivable way. They practiced literal idolatry by going after false gods and worshiping them. They had also practiced the form of Judaism, but they replaced many of God's instructions with a complex web of syncretistic practices that they justified doing due to their separation of Judah. They're like, we can't go to the temple anymore, so we're going to do it our way. So effectively, the religion of the northern kingdom became something different than Judaism, even though they called it Judaism. So as a nation, they had given their hearts away to other gods, even while enjoying prosperity and going on with life as if everything was okay. But things were not okay. And there were warning signs, two warning signs in particular. Number one, God sent prophets to them to warn them. That should have been a heads up that things were not going well. He sent them Hosea to warn them that they were spiritually at death's door and judgment would be coming if they did not repent. And then number two, at the same time, there was a rising neighboring enemy, the Assyrians to their north. These were not people that were friends. The Assyrians were to them, to Israel, like soaring vultures over their heads, ready to consume spiritually dead Israel. In the words of Hosea, Judgment was coming. So Hosea says, The Lord says, Israel, my people, have transgressed and rebelled against my law. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue them. And then these famous words, They have sown the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. But in the face of this looming judgment and the warnings of the prophets, Israel responded by placing their trust further in wicked kings. And although they were prosperous economically, they were very unfaithful spiritually. They had gone after other gods again and again. They were not listening to the prophets calling them to repentance. And so in history, in real time, God judged them. And this would happen by the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians And things for the northern kingdom would never be the same. Never be the same. So in God's providence, Assyria's ascendancy as a regional power and threat to the people of God was corollary to the fact that Israel was not living for the Lord. It was corollary to their idolatry and corollary to the judgment that God would bring. He's sovereignly working all these things together. 
But chapter 11 in Hosea is an interesting one. You would think that going through Hosea would be chapter after chapter of judgment, judgment, judgment. And there's a lot of that. There's a little bit of that in this chapter. But chapter 11 is interesting because it's far less about the threat of God's judgment and far more about the tender and compassionate heart of God for a people that he considers to be his children. And it's a heart of God that we will be considering deeply this morning against the backdrop of Israel's sin. And this will help us to see an important truth about our God, that the Lord is always faithful. So let's take a look now at what this chapter is saying in Hosea about God as a loving father for his people. So look at verses 1 through 4 with me. This is God's word. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So what do we see here about God as Father in these verses? Well, first, in verse 1, we see that God loves Israel as his child. He calls Israel his own son. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this recalls, of course, the earliest days of Israel's history before they were even established as a nation. They were at that time in Egypt, weak and helpless and very humble. Now, although Israel's sojourn in Egypt started off well, following the death of Joseph, life became to them almost unbearable. They were hated by the Egyptians. The Egyptians treated them as their slaves. And so by the beginning of the book of Exodus, the burden that the people felt was so heavy that all they could do was cry out to God and ask for help. And the Bible tells us that God heard their cry and he knew their pain. And it was God who confronted Pharaoh over the mistreatment of his people. In fact, in Exodus 4.21 through verse 23, Moses, in his first confrontation to Pharaoh, the Lord told Moses what he should say. He says, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all of the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And so it was the Lord as the father of his people that went and got his son out confronted Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Now, there's a lot more, of course, to the Exodus story, but it's beautifully summarized here in verse 1 in Hosea 11. It says that God called his child, his son Israel, out of Egypt. Now, that God calls Israel his son is significant, and we're meant to think about it this way. It makes me think about being a father myself. So on December 20th, 2013, My firstborn child, Henry, was born, and I remember that day really fondly. I think I've talked about it in another sermon before. 
Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, the moment that I first held my son in my arms, I was filled up with love. But even before that, um, when Beck and I found out that we were expecting a child, we were so excited. And here's what it looked like. We made special announcements. We had to make sure that our family knew first because family takes those kind of things personally. Um, we had a, a, a church member come over and take our pictures uh, so that we could properly make an announcement on Facebook. We spent months planning out what Henry's room would look like, making sure that we had all of the things. Uh, friends at this church threw Becca a big shower. And uh, we even revealed Henry's name to the youth group at a fall retreat. They were the first ones to know that we were going to name our son Henry. And they cheered. They were so happy. They shared in our joy. But nothing compares to the moment that we first saw him. I mean, when he was born, we were smitten. We couldn't wait to hold him in our arms. You know, when Becca was first holding him, I was like, give him to me. You know, I want to have a chance. Uh, we were filled with pride, and uh, the good form of pride. And love is really the only way that we could describe that kind of love that a father or mother has for their child. And of course, if we're capable of this kind of love, have you ever wondered what love God the Father must feel for his children as a father would feel for a child? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So we're going to camp out on this truth through this sermon, but we really ought to take it in and begin now to take it in. God the Father loves us in such a way that he calls us his children. Calls us his children, and what he calls us, we are. And that's what he calls Israel here in this verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But then notice what verse 3 says. Verse 3 tells us more about the heart of God the Father for his child Israel. It says, I taught Ephraim to walk. Now, Ephraim is sometimes a name that's given to Israel. It's one of the largest tribes of that ten that split off. And so God taught Ephraim to walk. Now, again, parents, you know the feeling. Those moments of exhilaration when you see your child, your son or daughter, take their first steps. But it's, it's not just that we're filled with joy at seeing our child do that for the first time. It's because we've made efforts to teach our child how to move around. And we'll continue to do those kind of things. It's not just walking. You think about um, the opportunity to teach your child how to run, how to climb, how to tie their shoes, how to ride their bike, how to drive a car, and so on. We're talking about helping our child grow up. Well, the next phrase can be difficult in the Hebrew, and not that I know anything about a he Hebrew. It's a commentator says it's difficult, so I think it is. Um, it can be translated this way. Taking them by the arms is how it's translated in the NIV. In the ESV, it can be, I took them up by the arms. So there's just a slight different meaning there. Um, so one would be like, I, I taught him how to walk. And the other would be, I, I grabbed him by the arms so that I could hold him. Now, then it makes reference that though they did not know it, it was God who gave them healing. 
So this is a reference back to the story of Exodus again. In particular, it has in mind the story of the waters at Marah, the bitter waters that they couldn't drink in which Moses miraculously purified after praying to the Lord. God then spoke these words in Exodus 15 to the people of Israel. He says, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now it says that they did not know it was him or, or the Lord who healed them. Now here you get another picture of love of the Father, of Israel's need for the Father at the same time. You see, just as it is with parenting, as you teach a child to walk and you help them to learn new things, your child will sometimes get hurt or they'll get sick. You know, our children grow up in a world where they're going to fall, where they're going to get injured. And of course, we're only talking about bumps and bruises here. But some of the pain that our children will face will be very deep, and it will be because of we are in a sinful world. It may be because of sin that they brought on in their own lives. But when a young child falls down and scrapes their knee, what does a mom or dad do? They take them in our, in our arms, and we bandage up the scrape with a fun superhero band-aid. And we make sure that they know that we love them and tell them that they're going to be okay and quickly, they're ready to jump right back into life. And so it was with God the Father. He was ready to bring healing anytime the people needed it. He was ready to teach them, ready to guide them, ready to discipline them. He was always ready to love them. Well, as Israel grew as the Lord's child, it says in verse 4 that God also led them with cords of kindness and with the bands of love. So God leads his children with kindness and love. Now, this reminds me of something that we do in our children's ministry, especially in VBS time with the preschoolers. We have to move them from room to room, and it's a challenge to take preschoolers and move them from room to room in some sort of way that they don't get lost or injured. And so some genius years ago came up with the idea of having a rope that they would all hang on to. So the children grab onto the rope, and somehow it works. And you can take the children from place to place. And so it's a very practical thing, a practical way to care for these children. Well, the Lord's kindness and love, these bands and cords that he speaks of, these are practical, very real ways that he shows and demonstrates kindness and love to us. Now, cords of kindness, literally in the Hebrew says cords of a human. And so it's caused us to wonder, what does that mean? Well, it could refer to very really that uh, the cords of a human, the kindness that God showed was by giving Israel Moses to show God's kindness and love to them by mediating that relationship, by praying to the Lord on their behalf, by being their leader during that time. That could be what that means. But it, very generally, it also just means that God has shown kindness and love to his people in myriad of different ways, practical, real, physical, spiritual. He's cared for his children all throughout their history. Now then there's one more thing that's mentioned here in the first four verses about God's fatherly love. It says, I lifted the yoke 
from their neck, and I bent down to feed them. So that's the NIV 84. The ESV translates the verse very literally by speaking of the yoke being on their jaws. Now these translations are making a switch between this father-to-child image to one of, um, of draft animals or farm animals, like an ox. But it's also possible that what's literally translated in the ESV is meant to give us just a slightly different picture, again, of fatherly love. So another translation says, To them I was like one who lifts a little child by the cheek, or to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. So this keeps that father-to-child image. Now, either way, the picture is one of God feeding his children. So this is something that the Lord certainly did for the people throughout their history, especially their infancy as a nation. So in the wilderness, God provided them water. He provided them manna. He provided them quail. He literally fed his people what they needed while they were in the wilderness. But of course, it also pictures the fact that he would ease burdens for his people. So in love, God the Father would ease the burden of his people. Though they would have a yoke and serve the Father, at the same time, God would bless them in the fact that they would know him as Father, would bless them as a nation. And so he would do that again and again. And he would do this all their life. Now, um, yesterday was the Hall of Fame induction for uh, the National Football League. And um, I don't normally follow these kind of things, but yesterday a a former football player named Zach Thomas was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, He played for the Miami Dolphins, but the cool thing about Zach Thomas was he's from my hometown and played for my high school football team. Now he's in the Hall of Fame, so that's cool. Well, um, as a result of, of all of this going on, we've always been proud of Zach Thomas. But now we're like proud again. The man's 49 years old. And we're still like, he's from Pampa. He's awesome. And so you think about in the same way, God cared about his child throughout his child's history. He does that for us too. From the moment we're born again, he still thinks about us as his precious son or daughter to this day. And here's what God himself says of Judah. This is in Isaiah In Isaiah 46, he says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, the remnant of the house of Israel, who I have borne by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save, even to the gray hairs. So God is committed to loving them as father all their life, all their history. He's always faithful. So now that we've unpacked this, each part a little bit, I want to put it back together to summarize God's heart for his children. So as Israel's father, it says that he calls them his children, his sons. He taught them. He healed them. He held them. He led them lovingly and with kindness, and he has fed them. And the primary motivation that's given for us in Hosea chapter 11 is that God loves them. That's powerful. Now, of course, it's not God's only motivation. He's motivated um, by his faithfulness to his own character. He's motivated by his glory. And all of these things enrich our understanding of who God is and that there is no one in heaven or on earth like our Father, like our God. 
He's matchless in all things. But what is deeply comforting to me in this is how he could love me as a father loves a child. He does that for Israel. He does that for all Christians. God loves in a deep and fatherly way. But it's important at the same time that we consider what are we like as his children? What was Israel like? So for that, let's look now at verses 2 through 7. So it says, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down and I fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, I shall not raise them up at all. So sadly, this is how Israel is accurately described as a child. This is the character and bent of the people, and it was that way from the beginning on down into Hosea's day. The text says that the more that God called out to Israel, the further Israel went from him. Though this truth about Israel plagued them throughout their history, it's at a fever pitch during Hosea's day. Well, what did it look like? Well, it meant that they were going after idols, after false gods. They were sacrificing to the Baals. They were burning incense to images. They were breaking the first two commandments. This idolatry is a major sin concern in Hosea. Now, perhaps the people reasoned Baal is worthy of their devotion. They were living in a pain-filled time, a troubled time. The peace that they enjoyed early on in the northern kingdom had quickly devolved into political upheaval. At one point, they had six kings in a period of 30 years. That's a lot. Drought, famine, and the threat of their powerful neighboring countries probably weighed on them. Perhaps they thought that Baal would serve them better than the Lord. For those devotees of Baal, they believed that Baal controlled agriculture, rainfall, the productivity of the land. Perhaps that they knew that they were fully committing apostasy and it just didn't matter to them at that time. They were simply hard-hearted. Or maybe it's a mix of all these things. I don't know. But whatever it may be, God sent Hosea to them to speak to them, to call on them to return to the Lord. The Lord sent Hosea to warn them. You know, in going after Baal worship, they had committed apostasy. One of the things, one of the images that Hosea uses to speak to his people is to to get his point across about their unfaithfulness is the image of marriage. That by covenant, they were a people bound in union to the Lord like a marriage. That Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord, especially in their idolatry, is likened to spiritual adultery. To take that reality of spiritual adultery and now apply it to the relationship of a father to a child, you get this pain and this sadness that comes from the father calling out to his son to come back to him, and the son refuses, only to watch him ignore the call, only to watch him continue in his sin, only to watch him move further away. 
As time had gone on, they had grown so distant to the Lord that they no longer really knew him. And even when the Lord uh, cares for them, meets their needs, they do not acknowledge God as their healer. Verse 7 tells us that they were determined, that they were bent on turning this way, turning away from the Lord. And this includes verse 5, that they even wanted to return to Egypt. So imagine how hurtful that would be. You want to go back to Egypt? You know, I think that in some mysterious way, God wants us to understand how, as a father, he would feel at our running away from him, at what we would go after sin instead of going after him. You know, this is part of the reason why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son and why it's so compelling, is we can relate to the pain of the father in the parable that his son would exchange the father for a life of sin. So this is part of the reason why our sin is so grievous. And so, although the period of time where the northern kingdom had come into existence to its fall was very short, this really was characteristic. It was sadly characteristic of the nation since its founding. You know, Joshua warned that the people would walk away. Judges shows that it's a cycle of them going after idols, going after sin again and again. There were highs for sure, but there were many lows. They were constantly forsaking the Lord. And so God showed long-suffering throughout their history. But after about 700 years, the Lord disciplined them severely. Ultimately, the northern kingdom would come to ruin. Hosea would even witness the fall of the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria. And the people would lose their homeland. Some would be taken to Egypt, a place of slavery. Uh, Some would have Assyria rule over them. For some, the sword would come and the gates of their towns would be overthrown and their lives would end. They no longer would be exalted, as it says in verse 7. I think it's appropriate here that we would step back from this and ask three questions. The first question that we should ask is, what should we think of Israel as God's child in light of this punishment. The second is, how should we think about God the Father in light of this punishment? And the third is, how does this passage in Hosea relate to the gospel? So let's take that first question. How should we think of Israel in light of this punishment? You know, the title of this sermon is, The Lord is Always Faithful, and God is always faithful. He's faithful to himself at all times and forever. He's faithful to his promises and he is faithful to his people, for his people at all times and forever. So how should we make sense of the fact that Israel has now grown so far apart from the Lord in sin? How should we make sense of the fact that the Lord will bring judgment upon the northern kingdom, a judgment so severe that the nation would never really recover? Well, I'll make three quick points here. First, this is a good place for us to be reminded that not all Israel is truly Israel. The people that make up the whole nation are not all truly Israel. This means that not all people who were a part of the nation of Israel are among those who have faith in the Lord and are faithful to Him. Many, many of them did not have faith in the Lord, and they did not live faithfully to Him. But even among the people of Israel at the time of Hosea, there were faithful people. 
faithful men, faithful women, faithful children who love the Lord in Israel. Hosea the prophet's one of them. All of those that were faithful had been justified. Their faith, by their faith, they had been credited to them as righteousness. And so God was committed to them, even in the midst of the people as a whole, turning their backs upon the Lord. Second, at times, the righteous do get swept up into judgment. This doesn't mean that the judgment was going after them for their own sin, but they're just around while judgment is happening. And so you think about this. Jeremiah was a faithful prophet, and against his will, he was hauled off in Jeremiah 43 to Egypt with unfaithful people. Or you think about Daniel, one of the most faithful men to ever live, had to grow up in Babylon because of the sin of others. You think about Stephen. He was attacked because he was a faithful man. Or Jesus himself never sinned. And he was swept up in the wickedness of the people around him. Now, the wicked in each of those cases were storing up wrath for themselves as God was sovereignly working everything according to his will. They brought judgment upon themselves. God brought judgment upon them. But at the same time, God would bring discipline upon his sons and daughters to make them more holy. He would bring salvation to all of those that he will to save. So collectively, Israel would be judged for ignoring the Lord's call to repentance through Hosea. But God never lost or turned his back on any one of his children. And so this brings us to number three. God never disowns his true children. He's committed to them. He's always faithful. So look at verses 8 through 11. This answers the question, how should we think of God the Father in light of this punishment? God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am, a, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So here's where we get a picture of God's heart for his grown children, but sinful and wandering children. And here it is. He says, despite everything, I can't give you up. I can't give you up. God says his heart recoils at the very thought. So just as we as earthly fathers would recoil at the thought of disowning a wandering child if there's still hope, can't even imagine what we would do, the Lord is always faithful. And so he says, how could I hand you over? Now, the reference to Adma and Zeboim refer to two of the five cities of the plain that are associated with Sodom that he destroyed in Genesis. Like, I can't do that to you like I did to them. You are my child. The Lord's heart recoils at bringing destruction upon his child. Instead, it says he's filled up with love. 
The end of verse 8 says that he has compassion growing warm and tender for them. He sees his people as harassed and helpless. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them as a father seems, uh, sees his children when they are hurting, struggling, or even when they're choosing wrong. God shows compassion for them. And so he determines, I will not finally destroy them. So he says in verse 9, I will not execute my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One, in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Now, verse 10 is amazing. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Aslan and Narnia. It says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. But now let's consider a third question. How does Hosea 11 relate to the gospel? How does it preach Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Hosea 11 is begging for this to happen. Let's begin with the key principle and truth about God's character, that God will always remain faithful even when his people are sinful. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God's own commitment to who he is has him committed to us, and he does so especially in the gospel. But of course, that would leave us thinking like, what about our sin problem? Is God just committed to us and we're left in our sin? Well, that's where Jesus comes in, and you know this. So look with me at verse 1. Now, you were thinking at this time when I went through verse 1, you are thinking, Kevin has really messed this up. He didn't say a single thing about Jesus. Well, I was just saving the best for last, okay? So verse 1 says, Out of Egypt I called my son, which should sound familiar because that's Hosea 11.1. 1. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, as a prophecy about Jesus. Now, Matthew chapter 2 is where we are told of a visit of the wise men who were searching for Jesus. They were seeking to bring gifts to Jesus and worship him. Um, they inquire with Herod, where can I find this young king? Herod is filled with jealousy about this and decides, I'm going to decree to kill young children in my kingdom so that there's not a rival to me. And so the Lord appeared through an angel to Joseph and says, take the child with you to Egypt for those are seeking his life to destroy him. And so he did. And this was to fulfill after that, um, after, after Herod died and they returned back, um, Matthew says that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. And so there's Hosea 11, 1, the gospel is in this chapter. Now, there's actually more, though, I think, that preaches Christ in Hosea 11. You know, think about this. It's in Jesus more than anyone else in all of history and in all the world that we see the compassion and love of our Heavenly Father. Jesus was the one who taught us that we should pray to the Father as our Heavenly Father. And so we have the Lord's Prayer. Jesus also taught us on a deeper level the remaining love of the Father, 
the steadfast love of the Father, even over his wayward children. And so he shared with us one of the most well-known stories ever told, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. There, while the son was wandering and living in sin, the father was longing and waiting for his return. When the prodigal son came to himself, he wanted to go back home, but only thought I could go back as a hired servant. But as he nears his father's home, the father sees him from a distance, is filled with compassion for his son, and runs to him and embraces him. And then he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And then, of course, it was Jesus himself who told us John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus shows us the love of our Father. You know, the people of the northern kingdom had a great enemy in the Assyrians, The Egyptians, they hoped, could help them, but they couldn't help. Assyria was an existential threat to them. Well, death is a far greater enemy and threat than Assyria ever was. There's a song that our students in the youth ministry sometimes sing called Living Hope, and there is a lyric in it that says, Then came the morning, speaking of the resurrection, that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe, Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no uh, grip on me or claim on me. Jesus is the roaring lion that declares that the grave has no claim on the children of God. Just look it up, 1 Corinthians 15. Well, what about discipline then? What does that have to do with the gospel? Well, discipline is different than destruction. Correction is different than judgment. God the Father loves his children, and he is always faithful to them. Because he loves us, he will never disown us, but he will lovingly discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, my son, do not take light the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart if he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline, God is treating you as sons. We have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So for application, I want to give just a few questions for you to take home and meditate on. Do you believe these things about the Father? First, do you know that he is always faithful to you if you are his child? Always to the very end. Second, are you a child of God in the first place? If you are lost in your sin, if you would say, I'm not a Christian this morning, I would encourage you to know that God as Father will adopt you into his family if you'll trust in Christ as your Savior. So if you're not a Christian, just come talk to me after the service or talk to someone else that's here that can help you to understand the gospel. Third, do you know the Father's love? We're told to meditate on this. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And fourth, do you know that the Father 
does not lose a single child ever. Romans 8, I am convinced that neither life, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither presence, present nor future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Hosea and the unique opportunity this morning to walk through Hosea 11. I pray, Father, that you would lead us as a church to meditate on the amazing truth that you have adopted us as sons and daughters into your family and that you love us as your children. We know that this blessing of all blessings was made possible by the death of your son that you sent to rescue us from our sin. We thank you, Father, for always being faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.